Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, Season 6, Episode 15. But when I talk to them, I talk to them about two things, real important things, communication and relationships, both of which are extremely important in anything that you're going to do. You've got to build a relationship with that head coach and you've got to communicate with him regularly. Um, and only then can what you're doing be successful or can you have an impact. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Our guest today is a two-time Olympian discus thrower in 1980 and 1984. She excelled through her college career at the University of Arizona, where she ultimately became the head strength and conditioning coach, which included working with football. She was the first woman in the field to hold such a position. She has also held roles with the U.S. Olympic Committee and is currently the director of the Center of Excellence for Sports Science and Coaching Education at East Tennessee State University. Meg Stone, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I'm delighted to be part of your podcast uh, group and looking forward to the chat. I know that intro probably felt like we were just at the national conference and uh, where you gave the uh, keynote presentation. It was really great to have you there and just having you share lessons from a veteran strength coach. Uh, How was that experience for you? Well, first of all, I've got to say I was tremendously honored and flattered to be asked to do the keynote. Um, you know, I've seen, obviously, I've sat through quite a few keynotes um, and honored to be amongst that group of people. You know, when you've had Jackie Joyner, Kersey and people like that come as keynotes, um, to be in that group was tremendously, as I say, a, a big honor for me. Um, particularly with the amount of uh, time that I've spent uh, going to the NSCA conference. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed the conference this year, not just because I did the keynote, but I've caught up with a lot of people that I haven't seen, obviously, for the last two years with the COVID situation. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a great, great showing. You had a packed house you know, right on that first big conference day with so many good sessions, your husband, Mike Stone actually presented uh, the next day at the conference. And that was a really, uh, that was really good. I I thought the lineup was, was just really strong. We had three great keynotes, Dr. Stone presented, uh, Bill Kramer presented as, as well. Uh, You know, there's not a lot of NSCA events. You go back through the years where, you really have the full lineup of some of the just the top researchers over over so many years, and so uh, it it was a lot of fun. I like I say, I really enjoyed the conference, and uh, there were some very very good talks this year. Um, <clears throat> I've always felt that um, you know you have a double chance when you go to the conference to network first, you know, catch up with people, what they're up to, what they're doing how they work in their program, how you're working, your sharing knowledge, and also um, learning. Because some of those poster presentations, you know, with people like uh, the, the grad students from Tim Sukumel at Carroll and from our students, um, really top-notch presentations on the research side. So 
really a good a good conference. Not only that, it gave me a chance to tap, catch up with some of the vendors. You know, Chris Poyer from Perform Better and John Joss from Gatorade and all these guys that um, really have been phenomenal support, not just of the NSA, but sport in general. So, yeah, good, good, good catch-up time and a thoroughly enjoyable conference. Yeah, you mentioned the exhibit hall. You actually had a booth there for ETSU and the, the grad programs, the education programs that you have there. I want to ask you about your role at ETSU. Tell us a little bit about that program. It's obviously a lot of great young researchers are coming out of the ETSU sports science program, and uh, it's really making an impact on, on the field as a whole right now. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, it's interesting. We started the PhD program in 2012. And we, when I say we, I really mean Dr. Stone, Dr. Mike Stone, my husband. He has had this vision, really, um, most of his academic career, that we need to change the face of coaching and the way that we approach coaches' education. And so he presented to our president this idea of an integrated program with the athletic department where they come in as a master's student or a physical or a PhD student. They come in as that grad student and they're assigned a team. And that team they are with the whole time they're here for the two or in the master's program or the three in the PhD program. And it's a little bit different uh, from most sports science or, or uh, exercise science programs in that it's not exercise science, it's definitely sports science. And the reason I say that is they are in a day-to-day-to-day-to-day situation with their team, the coach, and the way that the whole thing works is they may be in class in the morning or early afternoon, depending on the schedule that they are involved with with the sport. They leave having had a sports conditioning one, sports conditioning two, they leave that classroom and they go implement what they blend in theory in a practical situation with their team. And that is totally different. And the reason I say that is I get a lot of requests, Eric, for interns. Well, you can imagine it's very difficult for people in our program to do an internship because really they're doing an internship the whole time they're here. And it's difficult to break that young person away from the team because hey, they're there in the fall, they're there in the spring, they're setting up the summer workouts, you know, they've got a year round commitment. So it's very difficult to get them away to do an internship. It, it's not impossible, they do do some internships, but it's difficult and it has to be a particular time of the year that they do that internship because our whole program really is based on an internship situation. You know, most programs you'll get a GA and if you're lucky, you'll get into the weight room and you'll be able to GA in the weight room, but that's one or two people. Our whole program is set up in that fashion. In fact, two of our PhD students run the whole Olympic uh, weight room. Um, so it's an entirely different program from most programs. It's a day-to-day theory and practical situation. 
sounds like it's fully, you know, a fully embedded experience, you know, the hands-on, the, the practical portion with obviously the curriculum and academic side, where did that integrated program concept come from? Well, really, um, we felt, and Dr. Snow and I have talked extensively about this, obviously, living together, we talk about breakfast, lunch, and supper, you know, <laughs> that um, we, we felt that coaches' education was not as thorough as it should be. You know, when you go to a, to a um, NGB, National Governing Body of a Sport, you, and you learn how to be a coach, often it's a weekend here, a weekend there, a day here, a day there. And um, we felt like that was not comprehensive enough, that you needed a whole experience, um, two, three years of background, both in physiology, psychology, the whole ologies that you need to be able to coach. Um, we felt that was very, very important um, to be done in a full-time basis. And it really came from a two-pronged two approach, um, Eric, we have two tracks. One track is research and the other track is coaching and performance, performance coaching really. And in those two tracks, um, you are taking some classes, um, you can go down either track or, and some classes are totally on the research. Like for instance, we have a statistics class in the PhD which is done in the medical school. So it's with the medical students. Um, so there's a very high emphasis on the research and the stats. With the performance, um, there'll be classes like management skills for coaching, coaching issues, those kind of things. Um, so, but depending on what track you're in, you can take electives in either. So you end up, being able to say to yourself, okay, do I want to coach or do I want to be a faculty member somewhere? You've got both strings to your bow, which I think is unique in the programme. We're not just churning out faculty. You know, you, we've got the Tim Sukumels out there, but Tim's also a very good researcher, but he's also the Sports Institute. He's encouraging coaching. So um, it's, it's a really unique programme. Um, and I'm, I must say, Eric, I'm very, very proud of it. When I, I took a look when I came back and made a list of all the people that we have who are out there um, doing some phenomenal work, um, it, it, it's an impressive list when you look at people that are out in the pros, people that are out, you know, we just three weeks ago, one of our students was hired as a sports science guy at University of Auburn. So, you know, we're, 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 we're getting them out there. Yeah. People are recognizing yeah. our program has met. Can definitely hear your, your passion and enthusiasm for the program that you built there. When you think back to just the evolution of GA positions, young, uh, maybe restricted earnings type positions years ago and how they've evolved in different areas of the field, you know, obviously the train keeps moving. The, these positions are, they're a little different at every institution. We have some international guests on the podcast that talk about their fully embedded, integrated PhD programs, maybe in Australia, where they get to work with an NGB. So they get that really 
hands-on uh, practical experience. And that's where they're doing their research, a little different sport model over here, but it's really, you know, like I said before, there's a lot of emerging great researchers coming out of the ETSU program. Also coaches just being through the coaching ranks, having crossed paths with a number of coaches up through the minor leagues and professional baseball, the major leagues. Uh, it's, it's really cool to see, a program almost employ that international model in a way, uh, in in a little bit different way. Uh, but but it's really cool to hear hear how that's evolved. You know, one thing you know, just reading some papers, some terms that I hear coming out of ETSU are sport performance enhancement group or high performance team, and some different just works that have come out. How do you view the role of the coach within these emerging leadership teams in sport? Well, one of the things I always talk about when I talk to the students, and Eric, I've got to say, we have had some of the most phenomenal students here, and we have some really phenomenal ones at the moment. But when I talk to them, I talk to them about two things, real important things, communication and relationships, both of which are extremely important in anything that you're going to do. You've got to build a relationship with that head coach and you've got to communicate with him regularly. Um, and only then can what you're doing be successful or can you have an impact. Our sports performance enhancement team, the obvious head of that team is your head coach because he has the yay and nay on what you want to do. That's why relationships and communication are important. Um, the um, situation with the head coach is um, we will do our battery tests and we usually do our athlete monitoring two, three times a semester. And when we do our athlete monitoring, that the results from that testing are then presented to the head coach. And it's the head coach, the assistant coach, the athletic trainer, the strength and conditioning, the sport or the sports scientist that's involved with that team. And the sports scientist and strength and condition guy can be one of the same. So they sit down and they say, okay, where are we going with this team? And, you know, we've got, let's say it's men's and women's soccer. We've got people who are very, very well versed with GPS. And the coaches are actually listening to the strength and conditioning. Hey, this guy is a yellow today. You've got to watch him. He's on the bubble. This guy's full go. He's green. And they're actually listening. And some of the injury reports that um, we've had in the last few years have really shown how much the coaches have valued the input on volume load of work that the, the kids are doing and the feedback they get from that. Um, you know, when they come in, I'll give you an example, we do a um, force platform analysis. So if a kid, um, and they're a dual force platform, we look, take a look at leg strength, obviously, and then we've got baseline on that kid through the force platform. And we can then assess if there's an injury, where do they need to do it go to be back to where they were when they were working at full so, you know, we monitor it that way. We give feedback to the medical people. We've had a, we have a very good relationship with the, uh, the, the medical staff. 
they come into the weight room. We want them there. We want them part of what we're doing. Um, and it's building a relationship with them too. So really the whole idea came from this performance team idea where several heads are better than one. And feeding that information into the head coach. Yeah, sometimes the head coach makes a, makes a bonehead play and he'll go, okay, I'm not going to use that information. And that's his prerogative. But the good thing is we've given him that information to work on. And, you know, Dr. Stone said, hey, we can't control the head coach, nor do we want to, but we want to educate him and help him to be successful. So the other thing that we try to get across to the head coach is we're not the enemy. You know, we're here to help. We have the same goal as you do. We want to see your team be successful. And I've got to say that some of the teams that we've worked with have been tremendously uh, complimentary of the work we've done. David Lilly, our head soccer coach, my goodness, he won't let anybody move without having the GPS guy there. And Manuel Espinosa is his GPS guy from our PhD programme. We've always got to have him. And so, you know, it's really, it's, they really have in that performance team um, realised the value of what we do. And even with things like um, stress questionnaires, we will not give out any information to anybody on those questions because we feel that's confidential. It only goes to the head coach. We could fill out the questionnaire about sleep and school stress and it goes to the head coach and they then know, hmm, this kid's on the bubble, you know, uh, stress-wise. She's got three um, tests this week and so if she's a little bit off, that's probably why. So we've been involved in all that with the, with the performance team. Relate this back for me to your athletic career you know, track and field, you know, you probably didn't have as much access to all the things you're talking about, you know, force plates, technology, sleep tracking, uh, you know, and quality coaching, maybe it was a little different world back then and how we viewed the coaching profession. You know, what were some of the biggest takeaways and learnings just as an athlete that you can now steer into what we're building today? Eric, I was so lucky. I was talent ID'd by Frank Dick. Now, he got me into the sport. Now, if you look, Frank Dick is, like I said at the uh, convention, he is the executive director of the European Coaches um, Association. He's, right now, he's in Eugene, and he's doing a podcast every morning um, through the Global Sports Programme. Um, and they analyse every event that went on the day before. Um, they had Jimmy Radcliffe, Frank interviewed Jimmy Radcliffe on Tuesday, uh, talking about how he interacts with the track and field team in Oregon. So I was very, very fortunate. I had a guy who was up to his eyeballs in coaches' education from the day one that I entered the sport. And having done that, I was very lucky because with him coaching me, I used to go to coaching courses with him. He'd use me as his demonstrator, but I'd sit in on all the lectures. So all through the 70s, I was not only teaching, but I was learning 
um, the, the coaching uh, system. And very, very fortunate. And Frank was very, like I said, too, at the convention, he had just started to research his book on uh, sport training. And um, periodization was a big part in that. He published a whole series of articles in Athletics Weekly on periodization in 1973. So way, way back, I was in a structured situation as far as I, I needed, I, I knew how many throws was I taking in a session? What was my volume load in the weight room? What reps and sets was I looking at? What, how was that being cycled through the year? So very fortunate. To, and then I had a very close relationship with a guy called Carol Johnson, who was the coach's education guy for track and field in Great Britain and also a national coach in Hammer. He coached me right into the 1980 and 84 Olympics. So I had great coaches and good people all around me to learn from and um, all the way through. I am very, very lucky that I got involved. No, we didn't have force platforms, but we could count. We knew that if you were going over 35 to 40 throws in a session, that was too much volume load. It had to be cut back. And you, it was just really, I guess you could say, um, fly a little bit by the seat of your pants and learn and as you learn by the seat of your pants, don't do that again, <laughs> you know? Um, and I give this example to my class. You know, we talk about overreaching in track and field and, and, and really in strength training. Well, when I first got involved with overreaching, I thought, what a great concept. You get somebody into a fatigue state, you back off. You let them rebound, and they rebound beyond what they were before. That's the basic, um, I guess, layman's explanation of overreaching. Well, I thought, isn't that great? I'll overreach this kid for three weeks. And I just about <laughs> killed her. I, we realised now through the research, and she's still, that was the kid that I was talking about that uh, went to the Olympic trials in Orlando and uh, New Orleans and ended up going to the Barcelona Olympics. Thank goodness she had so much trust in me. She stuck with me. But, uh, um, but just a, a mistake in coaching because of not really understanding overreaching at that point. You know, I, I took a gamble. I tried something and I thought, oh, dear, this is not what I should have been doing backed off, learned from that, and realized overreaching, I can't do much more than a week. You talked a little bit about that taking a gamble just in discovering your career as a strength coach uh, and, and finding yourself in a strength and conditioning coach role, maybe something that you hadn't anticipated or planned for. You know, how is that, you know, how did that happen for you? I thought that was a really cool thing you shared at the, at the conference. Well, it was really interesting, um, you know, when I started uh, coaching in the U.S. after being an athlete, um, I started, as, a, as you were saying earlier, Eric, as a limited earnings coach. I was a limited earnings coach in track and field. And um, I got a call from the head football coach. Would I come to his office and 
have a chat. And I thought, oh, what, you know, you get a call for the head football coach, you think, oh, what have I done? Or, you know, what what's the problem? So I went there and then he threw me a can of coke, put his feet up on the desk and said, have you ever thought about strength coaching, Meg? And I said, not really. <laughs> I've, you know, I've been focused on coaching the throws because at that time, uh, in 88, uh, or was it just before that? No, it wasn't. It was uh, around about 83, I think. Yeah, it was 83. I, I had a couple of really good throwers on the hook. So um, I said, well, what, what's it? They said, well, I've had about 17 or 18 of the players have come in here and they thought you would be a good coach. They suggested that I approach you about being the strength coach. Okay. And then the hook. The hook. You'll be the only woman in the country doing it and the first woman to do it. And I thought, oh, I like the sound of that. So really, I just launched myself into it. And he said to me, um, what do you think about putting a programme together for the football team? And I said, well, and I shared this at Summer Strong this year. When I approached the team, the football team, I thought, well, I've got down linemen that are shot back discus throwers. I've got a javelin thrower back there trying to be a quarterback. I've got wide receivers that are sprinters. I've got the Catholic types that are linebackers. So that was the way I designed the programme. I knew everybody was going to squat, clean and bench in some form or other. I knew that. Depending on that position specific, you know, your wide receiver versus your down lineman, I would do two or three auxiliary lifts with them. But the meat and potatoes was squat, bench and and clean. That's really interesting. I like that intuitive comparison across sports that you you maybe just did to compare what you were familiar with, but sports like track and field, sports like football, there's a lot of different body types on the field that are, and and maybe perhaps that's why there's a lot of strength and conditioning coaches coming from those sports because you get a lot of exposure to um, the bigs, the 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 skill type positions, and and you know the more speed and and um in skill elements so yeah i think that was that was so cool and and i i wasn't at summer strong this year uh sorenex is a sponsor on this podcast i wasn't there this year but i caught some of the video and whenever you share what your uh your squat numbers and your your lift numbers were back in the day i'm i'm always a little intimidated by that no it's it's pretty impressive just uh just what you were doing at the time and I know turn turns a lot of heads and you were sharing some of that at the, at the national conference. And it's just, I was really happy. You got to be a keynote presenter, share uh, two standing ovations, obviously well-deserved everything you've done uh, in just the connections you've helped make in the field. Uh, I want, you know, it's obvious what you love, your passion comes through, you know, for this profession And one thing I like about you is you're not afraid to pick up the phone and call me with, Hey, you know, some things are going on the field that maybe aren't going so hot or, or we, we still need to work on some things. You know, what are, what are some of the areas you're keying in on or seeing right now that you'd like to see more progress? Well, I think I've got a bit of a a reputation sometimes of opening my mouth and being negative. And it's not a question of being negative. I don't want to be negative. I do want to address and help people 
um, address areas that we can improve in. And I don't think that's negativity. I think that's been very positive towards because there's a lot of great things going on. But how do you get better if you don't address the ones, the things that need to be addressed? And we have got a lot of, like I said at the convention, we've got a lot of issues coming up uh, in uh, uh, coaching at the moment, particularly in the NCAA situation, you know, with this, NIL and portals and I mean 4,000 kids in the baseball portal where are they going to go you know we've got a lot lot of issues like that but the main one that I'm particularly interested in actually researching and taking a good look at is this idea of specialist coaches and that just what we were talking about earlier um, uh, this performance team what are the elements that make a performance team work? You know, if, if there's somebody, just for example, because it's on at the moment, World Championships in Eugene, track and field. Um, somebody like, uh, I don't know, who, can, who could I take? Somebody like Mo, that Mo the 800-meter runner from Texas a and What's making her? What, what are the elements that are supporting her? Is it her head coach? Does she have an athletic trainer working with her? Does she have a strength and condition coach? Is there any sports science involved? And how are they interacting? And how is it affecting her performance? And those are, those are things that, um, what's the elements that make it work? Yes, we know genetics. We know this is a kid that was built to run an 800 meter. We know that, but Nothing that that performance team has done has harmed her, obviously. What's helping her? You know, what is a support unit? And it's the same in, in football, American football. You know, um, you look at some of these, um, let's say Clemson. You know, they've got a head coach called Joey Batson, who's in the strength room, in strength and conditioning. Yeah, they've got athletic trainers there. Have they got a sports psychologist working with them? Have they got a, a, a sports science department that's giving an input? The head coach, what's he allowing to happen and be done with his team and not? All those questions, I think, are things that can move our field forward. And um, what is stilting, what is worrying me about our field is the NCAA and making some really, really detrimental decisions for sport in general at collegiate level. And being um, driven down that road by the Power Five conferences. Concerning. Yeah, I can see that. There, there's obviously a lot going on with the NCAA right now. When we, I know in our world, strength and conditioning, we talk a lot about strength and conditioning coach qualifications at the collegiate level and what the standards are, what the requirements are as a need. This has obviously been a conversation for a number of years. And I think as a field, we haven't seen the progress that, that we would have liked to see. Is that how you feel about it? You know, is that the change that you're still hoping for? You know, are there any other areas that I'm missing? Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's what, what uh, the biggest change I think that we need in coaches' education as far as strength and conditioning is concerned is the old guard. 
oh, you don't need any of that physiology stuff. You don't need any of that. You just get in there and, you know, have two zippers up your knees and have a gravel voice and yell. That element of coaching, yeah, that's fine. As long as you've got the knowledge and the background to be in there with the gravel voice and the zippers up the knees. You know, that, that picture of strength coaching um, needs development. It needs to change. And fortunately, I think it is. I think there's a, they are a dying breed. Um, you know, who can yell the loudest in, in the coaching session? Um, and yeah, you need to raise your voice. Nobody, yeah, but with authority, with knowledge, background knowledge, and many of these uh, people that are coming up, they think coaching is a nice shiny thing. Oh, I get to go out there and I get to yell at people and I get to you know help them out and I'm I'm you know I'm running them whatever I'm lifting them in the weight room. This is great. Have you got the background to do it? Do you understand exactly what you're doing when you walk into the weight room and how you are impacting that young person's career by what you're doing? It's a tremendous responsibility to coach, tremendous. And not enough people take that responsibility seriously enough. You need, if, if I, I, and I keep saying this in my classes too, if a young person comes to you and says, help me, it's your duty bound to help them the best way you can by being as knowledgeable as you can and by being there with the art and the science of coaching combined. And the only way you get the art of coaching is to get in there and do it. And the only way you get the science of coaching is to study it. And um, I'd, unfortunately, we're still, we're still not there yet. And I think, Eric, one of the things that shows that quite clearly is when the NSCA were involved um, with the sudden death paper. And I think we've talked about that. The Sudden Death Paper is a phenomenal document with 10 points that every coach should know and adhere to. It was every association that has anything to do with sport was involved in putting that paper together. Go in and ask your head coach or any of your sport, have you read the Sudden Death Paper? They'll probably look at you like, what? Because it's not been widely enough circulated. We haven't got it out there enough. Um, and that's not to say that it's people's faults. It just hasn't happened. The right people have not got the paper. It, I, I talk about it in my class, every class I have. The first session we do, we talk about who are you? How are you going to coach? How are you going to approach? Okay, let's take a look at the sudden death paper and see what it says. Um, we don't have enough of that. We're, you know. I, look, I talk to some of my head coaches and say, well, you know, what about punishment? Like, oh, punishment runs are fine. We'll send them up and down the staircase. And you're like, God, it, uh, it's frustrating. <laughs> it's frustrating. Um, but, you know, I, I, and it, it's interesting because I've said to a couple of head coaches that look at me, I've said, uh, you, know, you realise that in some states in America, it's against the law to do punishment runs in high school. Do you realise that? Really? I mean, just be knowledgeable, get, read, <laughs> you know, read, get to know 
get to know the profession you're part of. And I keep saying this to my students too, summarising all that I've just rambled on about. Honour the Honour the profession. Honour this great profession we're all part of. Obviously, preventing catastrophic outcomes. You know, you talked about the paper around transition periods for athletes and periods of inactivity. One paper that came up a lot in 2020, 2021 with COVID was professional standards and guidelines paper. So that kind of ties in your point about professionalism and some of the standards and requirements for staffing and weight rooms and, and safety that often get overlooked. And we, I think it's important actually to say this, that we know that and we see these papers and sometimes a paper gets published, it goes out there and we process it and then we move on to something else. You know, in a profession like strength and conditioning, we need to continue to be advocates for this profession. And those statements continue to be important to share. And for the new sport coaches we're working with, with new administrators. And one thing that came through in what you said is advocating for strength and conditioning really as a necessity versus a luxury that some programs might have or take advantage of. But that's something that I know when we get our college coaching professional development group together, that's what they care about. It's, it's what increases the level of our positions at our institution so that our, our opinions are valued so that we're always not having to fight the same battles over and over again. And I will say just to you, you know, you're heard in this and it's important that, that everyone in the field who hears these struggles, who talks about it on Twitter or wherever these conversations are going on, knows that these conversations are being heard. And it's, and and especially right now, I think there's a huge realization after the recent Brenner, Brenner trial that, you know what, there has been a significant gap in time since when a lot of these papers came out to really, we just haven't had enough action from them. And, and doubling back on that is, is, I think it's something we need to do right now, a real call to action for us. Would, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's going to pick up again, Eric. I, quite honestly, we're going to, with with the return to some sort of no, um, normality after the COVID, we're going to see some of these uh, horrendous workouts come out of the woodwork again. It's going to happen again. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we can head it off at the pass if, if enough, if it gets out there enough. One of the problems I think we have is um, our athletic directors. Many of them are very focused on fundraising and very much on the financial side. And they're, a lot of the, um, they're not really, uh, they've got maybe a, an assistant athletic director that's involved with the high performance or whatever, but we just don't have enough of what I call the uppy-ups involved. This knowledgeable uppy-ups. And I know Bob Alejo has hammered the desk about this all the time, rightly so. Um, he's been a huge advocate for getting uh, athletic directors who know something about high performance and, and putting a program together and what's good and what's not. Um, and we need more of that, much, much more of that 
too few positions in athletic departments. You look at what you just need to pick up um, any journal, you know, journal higher education. What are you going to see? Compliance in ADs. <laughs> You're not seeing AD for high performance. You've not seen it. <laughs> well, especially now there's high performance director rules, performance director, strength and conditioning coach, all sorts of job titles out there. And someone being in a position to hire, hire these positions, positions of leadership, positions of influence needs to have some level of knowledge to base those hiring decisions on. And it goes back to what you said again, you know, professionalism for our field. You talked about some of the perceptions, stereotypes, there's a little bit of humor to be had in that, that, you know, within strength and conditioning, you know, but one thing I want to ask you, you're at ETSU. It's a new generation of coach and academic that you're working with. Would you say that you're seeing a shift in the young coaches today, just in how analytical minded they are, maybe in their professionalism or how they're approaching the field. Do you think we're making progress there? Definitely. I know in our program we are. Yes, we always get the one or two knuckleheads that come into mainly our master's program. And they are, I tell them at the very beginning of our orientation meeting, don't come here if you want confirmation on what you already know. Come here with an open mind, willing to learn and see things from a different perspective um, or something different. You may get confirmation from that, but come in with an open mind, willing to learn. And some we've had one or two master students here that uh, want to play the system. Mainly, it's mainly master's students, but there's been one or two PhDs in the last 12 years that have been the same. They are bent on what they're going to do, and that's it. Um, and, you know, okay, they, at least they will have left here with some knowledge about the, the area and what's needed to be done. Now, whether they do it or not, that's another question. It's like your certification, you know, you get certified and then you go off and do these stupid workouts and nothing ever happens to you. Um, sometimes um, academic programs are like that too. I've got to say, there's only been one or two in the last, what, 10 years that we've been going that I could say are, are like that. But you're always going to get one or two people who have got their own track. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, we've had some great students come out here. I mean, there's an example. You know, you were talking about baseball, John Waggle. Yeah. Notre Dame, you know. He's gone from uh, a really nice situation with the Kansas City Royals right into high-performance director for Notre Dame. One of our, like I say, one of our students three weeks ago just hired at Auburn for, for the sports science position. We're, we're fortunate that those are the people out there having an influence on the field. The other people that I was talking about are still in assistant coaching positions someplace, taking orders from the head coach and probably always will be because they haven't got the drive to learn the way they should have or, or pick up on things the way they should have. Well, it's, it's encouraging to hear that you see some progress and growth in the field. I think there's a lot of lessons and takeaways for 
young or aspiring coaches listening to that on maybe how to approach graduate study uh, with an open mind, getting into the field, having confidence, but not so much confidence that you aren't able to learn and, and process and, and take steps forward so that, so that you can accept feedback and, and improve from that. Uh, Meg, really, well, think, you know, you know, it's interesting because Dr. Stone always compares um, this field to the medical field. You know, many years ago when you were getting into the medical, I mean, because we, that's what we, what we do every day. We prescribe something for that athlete to do. We're, we're in the business of prescription. And when you do that um, in the medical field years ago, you went and you studied under somebody. And when you thought you were good enough, you hung out your shingle and you were a doctor. Well, strength and conditioning is still in that area. You know, you go, you learn under somebody, you learn the Joe Smith system, and then off you go. That's not good enough. In the medical field, we found out that, hey, maybe we need to have an actual academic background in order to become a doctor. Maybe we need to understand what blood does and what uh, muscle tissue does in order to be a doctor. Well, it's the same strength and condition. You need to understand what you're doing in order to be good at it. Uh, well, and on that, on that example, I think it's important to note that in the medical field where they're at today, not only do you have to be a physician and get your MD, but you need a residency. Then you need to be fellowship trained. Then you need to go and be board certified once you get enough experience. So it shows that we talk about our field field advancing and the requirements and getting getting raised and the competition is greater than it was years ago for coaching positions. Uh, and maybe it won't look exactly like medicine, but there's a lot to be learned. There's a lot to be learned there. Yeah. When you think about the medical field too, um, if I have a sore foot, I go to the, my general practitioner, the head coach, and I say, I've got a sore foot. Okay, go see the podiatrist. Okay, go to the podiatrist. He fixes the foot. Well, hey, I'm not feeling like my cardiovascular system is where it needs to be in order to run this 800. Well, talk to the sports scientists there. They'll help you. The analogies are there, you know. The same idea, you're specialist in a specialist area, helping that head coach to be successful. Sorry, Eric, I, I could ramble on about this all day. <laughs> no, this is great. I, th I like that. I, I think uh, those are analogies that, they come to mind for me a lot. So it's great to hear, hear that coming from you as well. Uh, but really great episode. Appreciate you being with us. If anyone wants to reach out, get in contact, what's the best way for them to do that? The best way is my email address at ETSU. So it's, and you'll remember it very easily, stone me. So it's <laughs> S-T-O-N-E-M-E -E at ETSU.edu. Perfect. We'll include that in the show notes. And uh, Meg, as always, great catching up. Uh, we we always enjoy 
uh, talking to you, hearing from you, hearing your stories and your perspective. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Eric. Thoroughly enjoyed the chat. Also, a special thanks to Soranex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. Hey, everyone. This is Strength and Conditioning Coach Scott Caulfield. You just listened to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, one of the best sources of information about the strength and conditioning profession. If you're new to this podcast and you want to learn more, subscribe now to always get the latest episodes delivered right to you. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.